ran across a really interesting article this week. It included a, a it really is more of a firsthand account of something a, a lady had experienced that resonated with me, uh, not because I've experienced the identical things, but just it, it really describes the human condition. And so I want you to just listen for a moment as I read her words. And the title that caught my attention and, and caused me to click uh, was, I had the picture-perfect life, but it wasn't a happy one. The picture-perfect life, but it wasn't a happy one. This lady writes, I'm not interested in keeping up with the Joneses, and I have a very good reason for that. You see, many, many years ago, there were only two children, and I was married to a different man, a man who cared about material possessions and instant gratification more than his family. We had a big house, a big newly built home with an incredible view of a lake, a big new home, nice vehicles, and a boat in the driveway. We had a little boy and a little girl, a million-dollar family, people used to say. We were, in fact, the Joneses. We were the postcard example of what society tells everyone they should want or aspire to be. But inside the front door of that house, there was a different story unfolding There was a life filled with alcoholism, drug abuse, infidelity, and violence. There was a life filled with overspending by a man who could never be satisfied and hopelessness and despair. There were two children who either never saw their father or only saw him screaming at their mother or passed out in bed. During those years, I often felt as though I was living in a reverse snow globe, The world outside of our home was sparkly and happy. Inside, I tried desperately to calm things down. But no matter what I did, we just kept getting picked up, shaken around again. From the outside, we were the envy of neighbors and friends. Inside, it was a nightmare that nearly destroyed me and my children. I was fortunate to get away with the support of family and friends who started to see what was truly happening, I was able to start a new life with my children. There's more to that story that she tells, but that, that visual image that she created by writing of that reverse snow globe is part of what caught my attention because I thought, that's what so many of us relate to, isn't it? We sometimes feel like we're on the outside looking in on other families or individuals who seem to have the, the perfect world, as it were, and yet she reverses that image for us and describes life in such a way that I think many people would relate to and say, yeah, I, I would kind of say it's a reverse snow globe for me. And I wonder if you would relate in the same way and say, yep, I'm there. Maybe it's a little different circumstances. Maybe you would describe your family dynamic or a business dynamic with with different words. But a lot of people know exactly what this lady expresses. And you're here this morning and saying, yeah, I, I just keep getting picked up and shaken around again and again and again. You know, since Easter, we've been looking at passages from the New Testament in particular that give us real, lasting Eternal hope, hope that is built on something solid, hope that can be described as the Bible describes it as a confident expectation for good, 
not this kind of manufactured, man-made wish list. We hope life will get better. We hope there will be success. We hope the kids will make it. We hope, we hope, we hope. No, the Bible uses that term as we've been looking at for several weeks now in a very specific way and saying when God gives you hope, it is a confident expectation that he is at work, that he will bring good, and you can rest and trust. We've looked at passages in Colossians 2, and then we backed up to Colossians 1, where we saw that Jesus Christ in his powerful death has delivered hopeless people from sin, from guilt, has reconciled them to the God who created them, who has spanned that massive gulf that our sin created by a shed blood, all of grace, all of mercy. We looked at the Scriptures that told us in his powerful resurrection, he's conquered the grave, death itself, a thing that many people live in absolute terror of. It's no longer an enemy to God's people. And he began to work a transformation in us that promises to make broken and imperfect, sinful, even evil people holy, blameless, above reproach, with a view of presenting us in heaven in the very presence of God to God. These are some of the passages that build a a real reason for us to be hopeful today. Life is hard, and chances are that your little snow globe will be shaken round and round even in the week to come, but there is a time coming when God himself will complete this work of change and transformation, and his people will enter glory forever. And it's not only that it's heaven is a perfect environment, more importantly, you as a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ, one who has experienced that powerful transformation of his salvation, you will be perfect. You see, imperfect people in a perfect environment are not going to be happy. Likewise, perfect people in an imperfect environment are not going to be happy. What you need are perfect people in a perfect environment. That's heaven. And that's what God promises Now, I want you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians 1. Ephesians is one of those books that I have long loved, and God used it in a very key season of my life. I was actually in college to just open my eyes to some powerful, powerful truths, and we're going to consider some of those this morning. If you don't have a copy of uh, the, the Bible with you, you're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And Ephesians is a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul. And if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 976. 976. And what I'd like to do is just read a portion of this very first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, Uh, we're going to get just a little bit of a running start. We're going to look very closely at verses 15 through 23, but let me back up a little bit to verse 3, and I'm going to highlight a few things there, and what I want you to notice as I skim over some of of this paragraph uh, are are some of the particulars that Paul writes about with reference to blessing. So he says in verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us,' who are the us?' Those are the followers of Jesus, the true disciples, believers. We sometimes use that term. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places or in the heavenly realms. So he's talking about things that you and I can't see with these eyes. We can't hear with these ears or touch with these hands, but they are real today. They're as real as we are all seated in this room on these pews at this moment. Now, what are some of those blessings? Well, this is where I'm just going to skim over this. 
Look at these phrases that describe what God has done. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Uh, End of verse 6, He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7, In Him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. Verse 8, He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight this grace, uh, the riches of His grace. It just continues, and then verse 11, let me just, I'm going to read verses 11 and following to to get us to verse 15 now. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's another one of the blessings. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? For this reason, that is because God has blessed you so richly in His Son by the power of His Spirit. For this reason, Paul says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, he's going to get very specific, so look closely at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit, or some of your English translations would say, give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and, every, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I'm struck as I look at this passage of of what it might mean to pray like an apostle. And you can see on the screen there's some key thoughts there that I wanted to highlight for you just really by way of introductory thought into into this passage. So Paul says, I'm praying because these blessings are real, because I see God at work in you uh, as a church, I'm moved to pray, first with gratitude, but then he says, uh, as a matter of these unceasing prayers, look at verse 17, that this is what I'm asking. So you want to know how to pray like an apostle? Here's how the Apostle Paul prayed for churches just like ours. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit or the spirit, as you can see, this is a legitimate translation, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. So a prayer that what is already ours, because remember earlier he had said, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And, and we know the Spirit of God dwells in His people. What Paul is praying is that what is already ours in Christ, in the Spirit, would be continually communicated to us by the Spirit. This wisdom that he writes of is the ability to know God's will and to live it appropriately. Revelation has the idea of of making something fully known. I'll touch on this in in a minute, but we're not talking about extra biblical revelation as if somehow there are secrets in the text that, you know, if you have this magic ministry of the Holy Spirit, then you can understand that nobody else can 
That's not what he's talking about at all. He's just saying that the truth here, because it is God's revelation to us, requires the Holy Spirit's instruction and teaching. And he's saying, I'm praying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would give you understanding into this word so you can know it and live by it. So this is a petition for the Spirit himself to be at work, giving insights into and unveiling aspects of the purpose of God in Christ. But now, here's the key phrase for us, and with this we're gonna spring into the passage. The last phrase in verse 17 is, in the knowledge of him. So what is Paul actually praying for? Well, there are two things here. The first, he's praying for the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that's where if you were writing notes in the margin, you might write that in. Okay, I'm trying to just give you a little direction there. Can you read my writing? Personal ministry. It's real artistic looking, isn't it? (laughs) The second thing he's asking for, though, is personal illumination. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And he's going to elaborate on this in verse 18. My prayer for you is that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened so that you may know something. And I think that's pretty easy to understand what he's talking about. You you can't see your heart, you can't touch it, but you know it's there. It's the inner you. Paul is saying, my prayer is that the Spirit himself would enlighten the eyes of that inner part of you. If those eyes are illuminated, that that stands to reason we're also seeing things from the heart that, that aren't physically around us. This is a spiritual work, isn't it? No wonder we need to be people who are praying for this very kind of thing. So now let's go a little deeper into the passage, though, beginning in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. What does does knowing God like an apostle look like? Knowing God like an apostle, because Paul's not just praying hypothetically or theoretically. He's praying out of his own experience with God, and he just so desires that these church members of the, of the church at Ephesus who are precious to him would also know these things for themselves. Well, there are several things that you may know. First of all, what is the hope? That would be number one, the hope to which he has called you. And then number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And number three, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now let's unpack these phrases here in the time that we have left together this morning. First of all, God wants you to know the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. What is the hope, Paul writes, to which he has called you? You know, if you trace that term calling or called through the New Testament, you will see it very often used with reference to God's invitation to the kingdom uh, of God and its privileges. Or we could even define it this way. It's the divine call by which Christians, believers, are introduced into the privileges of the gospel. This is God's call. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, Paul has just stacked up truth upon truth concerning our salvation. And Remember, as we read just a moment ago, in Christ he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And all of that informs the this call, and in particular the hope that comes with this call. Here's a second thought for you. It is a certain hope, as one author writes, for it rests on the very fact that the calling is God's calling and no weak wish of ours for better things. 
So here's a point to be encouraged in. If you are here this morning in faith saying, you know what, I really do believe that Jesus Christ is the living son of God who was born of a virgin Mary, lived his life in perfect obedience, went to that terrible cross, died as a sinner, though he had never sinned, died in my place, shed his blood that I might be forgiven all of my sins, resurrected from the grave, been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is my Lord. He is my King. Then That's the kind of testimony that verifies God's call has come to life in you. But I would also pause at this point and say, have you actually responded in faith to those truths? You might be here this morning saying, you know what, you just ran through a whole bunch of things I've never actually thought about before. Well, that's part of the reason we're here, because we want to share this good news of who Jesus is and what he has done by his life, by his death, and in his resurrection. We want you to know. So let us share more of that with you. Or maybe you're saying, you know, I've heard that before, but I've, I just never really thought it was that big of a deal. Oh, my friend, it's a huge deal. Because what you do in response to the call of God actually, uh, actually determines your destiny. And I don't mean just like if your destiny in life is going to be good or blessed or, uh, you know, really hard. I'm talking about where you live forever. Your eternal destiny has everything to do with how you respond to God's call. And if he has revealed the privileges of this relationship with him to you, then his expectation is that you would turn away from self and turn to him. We call that repentance. You say, I'm done with the old me. I'm done with the old lifestyle. I'm going to follow Jesus. So this call is not something we manufacture ourselves. Here's a third thought for you to try to help you understand more of what this calling is about. The believer's hope, notice, is tied directly to the eternal purpose of God to unite all things in Christ. Go back to um, Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10. A part of the blessing that Paul records at the outset is that God has actually made known to us the mystery of his will, which is according to his purpose, and he has set it forth in Christ. That is, he's revealed it in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And God is founding our hope and tying it directly to his eternal purpose to unite all things in Christ. You know, if you are a believer, a true follower of Jesus, that is a powerful promise for you to rest in today. Ephesians 2 verse 12 reminds us that even for those who have put their faith in Jesus, there was a time where they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to these covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Does that describe you, having no hope without God? Spiritually speaking, that's a condition we would refer to as lost. You may feel like you've got life together, but the reality is because you're not rightly related to Jesus, your Redeemer and Creator, spiritually, you have no anchor. And you may feel like things are good and you are in control right now, but a day is coming when you'll realize you really don't have hope. But the hope of God's calling takes us right back to Jesus himself. 
And the hope that God is reminding us of is that we can presently be united to him, be in perfect relationship with him forever. The second phrase that Paul uses here is that he prays that these believers would know what are the riches of his inheritance. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We just read previously in verse 14 of our inheritance. But now here in verse 18, he speaks of his inheritance or God's inheritance. Let's think about that. Now, an inheritance, when you, when you think of inheritance, you, typically, you think of something, typically, uh, that you received after the death of a family member or a friend, right? And that's why the reading of the will is an important step of settling an estate, and everybody wants to know, you know, who did Uncle Fester will his millions to? And that can often be a really scary time, frustrating time, even maddening time. How could I be left out? How could he end up with everything? Families sometimes go to war over the will, over the inheritance. But this refers to God's inheritance. And it's not the result of a friend or a loved one of his dying and leaving something to him. No, there's, there's a little different focus here. And another thought that occurs to me is God doesn't need anything else. I mean, there are no possessions or currency that could be added to his accounts or coffers that would increase his wealth. I mean, what would God possibly want? And you think of what he already possesses in heaven, and the rich inheritance of heaven is not the streets of gold or the gates of pearl. It's not the precious gems that make up the walls or the crystal river of life flowing from the throne of God that John describes in his last book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. God's inheritance is not the angelic host. It's not even the tree of life or the 24 elders around the throne. God's inheritance is not even measured in terms of currency that he could print if such a thing existed in heaven or exchange on the open market. And for all the glories of heaven, the thing God cherishes most and counts as his rich, glorious inheritance is of a different nature. I'm going to read through some Old Testament Psalms and then another New Testament passage, just a couple of chapters beyond where we are this morning, that actually say very specifically what God views as his inheritance. The first is from Psalm 2, verse 8. Listen to these words. Ask of me, God is speaking to Messiah, and says, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 33, verse 12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Or Psalm 106, verses 4 and 5, Remember me, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. And then just a couple of chapters beyond our study this morning in Ephesians 5, verses 26 and 27, the term inheritance is not used, but in the greater, in the greater context of our study, when the Lord speaks of this work that he will do in his bride, 
the church, he writes these words that Jesus might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Are you getting the, the, the scope of this truth and how God looks at people just like you and me and says, you are my inheritance. And there's nothing he values more than individuals like you, like me, sinful though we were, rebellious, dead in our trespasses and sins, as we read earlier in the service, as we've studied over the last couple of weeks, but those who had been purchased by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, washed in that same blood, brought into the family of God, all of his grace, people just like us who are still undergoing transformation, who aren't yet perfect, but God says will one day be holy, blameless, above reproach. These are the people that he values and cherishes and says, you are my inheritance. I read that and I just say, oh, how much this God loves us. And not one of us deserves it. Have you, have you meditated lately on your sin and what that actually deserves. I don't think you ought to spend a lot of time meditating on it, but it's good for us to remind ourselves that our sin actually deserves death. And not just like annihilation. What God describes as the true penalty of sin is an, it's an awful death. It's his condemnation. It's eternal separation, not just from God, but also from any other person. To be isolated from God, from all other human beings, to be cast into a place of suffering that never comes to an end because that's how he describes hell. That, that, that just boggles the human mind. I mean, we really can't fathom it, but that's actually where all of us deserve to be at this moment. But we're not there, are we? Because God is exceedingly kind and merciful and patient. He not only rescues sinful people from that certain judgment and condemnation, but he grants to those who believe on Jesus Christ, who repent of their sins and put their faith in him, a blessing that is more mind-boggling. I mean, I can fathom that I, as a sinner, actually deserve condemnation and judgment. But that I should be brought into a blessing so rich as this where God says, you, you are my inheritance. That is something that I can't comprehend. But this is truth, beloved, that actually begins to recreate our identity. Remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about how so many people live hopelessly and even struggle with a sense of worthlessness and it may be because they've been verbally abused or emotionally abused or whatever. They've just been mistreated and, and, and maybe you're married to someone who just continually puts you down and makes you feel worthless. Maybe you're in a work environment that's really tough and you, you're always hearing how bad your job performance is and how you always come up short. But you know, if, if you are a true child of God, he looks at you and for Christ's sake says you are of eternal value. How valuable are you to God? Well, here's part of the proof that he counts you as his inheritance. This truth creates a real identity for us. For us. 
And this truth has nothing to do with how you and I feel from moment to moment. Because we all have those moments where we're just, we look at ourselves, and it's a real assessment too sometimes, aren't it? Where you look at yourself and like, I am a dirt bag. I really am. Oh, the words I just said, they are so ugly, so hateful, so sinful. I, I'm awful. And those words should be repented of. Yes, you should confess them and say, God, please forgive me. Cleanse me afresh. Uh, but then you press right back into this truth where he says, you are my inheritance. No wonder Paul would say, my prayer is that you would know what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance that he has located in the saints. I want you to think for a moment about the daily pressures, the cares and temptations that threaten to capsize your faith. We can be here in a moment like this and and truly savor these truths and say, oh, God, that is so good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But you know what's gonna happen tomorrow? You're gonna be driving to work and your car's gonna suddenly shudder and then just shut down and you'll be on the side of I-15 or worse yet, in lane three of I-15. <laughs> People honking, showing you that good Salt Lake driver love. <laughs> is it just me or are there some really angry drivers? <laughs> now, I'm not gonna say that where I've come from we're any you know, nicer or better people, but I just feel, maybe it's because I'm new, I feel a greater awareness sometimes of, wow, there are some tight people behind the wheels. And that's probably putting it politely, isn't it? But your car's gonna break down, and so does your faith. It's just not, it's just not you in your broken-down vehicle on the side of the road, it's you in your broken-down faith on the side of the road saying, God, Yesterday was such a great day and I met new people or I just felt my heart encouraged in your word and I, really, I committed myself afresh to loving you and following you and knowing you. And now this, and, and it'll get a little harder because then you gotta get towed to the shop and, and some guy will smile and say, I can fix it, I just need $1,600. <laughs> and at that moment, the deficit of $1,600 is a greater reality in your soul then all of this beautiful, eternal, unchangeable truth we're looking at, isn't it? I mean, that's where we live. That, that, and my wife would be the first to testify, yes, my husband struggles with that. But that's the very moment where you preach God's truth, the gospel, into your soul. Because what your soul is hearing and what your soul wants to believe at that moment is that that $1,600 deficit in the car repair is the greatest reality you have to deal with, and it's not. It, it's, so, it's so fleeting, so temporary, it's like a shadow. Well, how am I gonna get to work? I know those are real issues and challenges we have to deal with, but the great reality is where is your soul headed for eternity? A hundred years from now, not one of us is gonna have a car problem. But a hundred years from now, you could be under God's eternal condemnation and judgment because you never called upon this God to save you in this lifetime. Oh, my dear friend, that's an unbearable thought. You know, there are others of you who put your faith in Jesus, though, in a hundred years from now, you know where you're gonna be? Presence of God. Whatever cares from this life you have faced, the real suffering that you have endured, the pain, the disappointment that you've felt, I mean, it's just gonna be swallowed up in the glory and joy of heaven. 
because your God loves you. And he has purposed to save you, to transform you, and to take you safely from this point on planet Earth at this moment in history to his eternal glory and joy. These are the true riches. You see, what you know, what you know about your God, the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance creates reality even when something like I've just described feels like the greater reality. Here's the third thing that Paul prays. God wants you to know the greatness of his power. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable power? This is very similar to the word from which we get hyperbole. And, and you know, that, that's like an over-exaggeration or overstatement of something. But Paul's actually heaping up some, some words and adjectives with them just to communicate. Beloved, listen to me. This, is, this power that I'm talking about is greater than you can fathom. And so he uses words like power and working and great and might. And let me just give you a quick understanding of those four words as you see them in this passage. The, pow- the word power refers to God's ability to accomplish something. It's one thing if you say, I desire, but, but your desire and your ability don't match. You see, God not only has the desire to bless, to work, to save, to transform, he's got the power to do it. And Paul even describes it as immeasurably great power. The second word, working, it would sound in the original language a lot like the word energy. So he not only has the ability, but he has the inherent strength to do it. You see, some people might have the ability to recruit others to a task and say, you know, I can't do it myself, but I know enough people and we can network and get this job done. Well, God uh, has the inherent energy within himself to accomplish everything that he purposes. The third word is the word great, and that refers to power that overcomes any obstacle. Sometimes we feel like, you know, maybe God and the devil are equals. Remember some of the passages we looked at recently? First of all, Satan is a created being. He's not even close to the same level that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit exist in. He's a created being, being far inferior, already through Christ's victory on the cross, been disarmed and and put in in God's triumphal procession as one of his captives. So you should never think that Satan might get the victory this week. Well, not if God's at work, not if you submit to God, because his power is great. He can overcome any obstacle. And the the fourth word is the word might, and that just refers to the actual exercise of power. It's like God rolling up his sleeves and saying, let's get to work. Paul uses three examples of God's great power that help enlighten the eyes of our hearts. And what are those three examples? First of all, resurrection. He raised Jesus from the dead. Nobody but God has ever resurrected people. Jesus did it in his earthly ministry, but again, that's because he's God, right? You and I don't have the power to walk up to a a grave and command somebody to come out, but God has that kind of power. He raised him from the dead. The second thing that God did is is what I would describe as exaltation. He seated him, look at the text, verse 20. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now the right hand is the position of authority and honor. And God the Father has given Jesus that seat of unparalleled honor and glory. He's exalted him to this place. 
And look at verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And those are some of the terms that we looked at over the last several weeks that describe the powers of evil and darkness, the devil, demons, other angelic forces that have fallen. Mysterious, many things about them we don't know, but look, Jesus is far above all of those. And then Paul goes on to write, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So whatever power names uh, we might be able to come up with this morning, Jesus is far above them. doesn't matter if it's the president of our country or a dictator from a foreign land, people who rattle their swords and make threats and tweet, out, tweet the most outrageous things, get the nations all, all uh, worked up and the markets are, are shuddering and quivering and trembling over what these people say. Jesus is so far above them that they're just non-issues. Resurrection, exaltation. Here's the third point, verse 22. He put all things under his feet. The word is subjection. All things under his feet. And then in doing that, look at verse 22. He gave him his head over all things to the church. And we're, we're coming full circle now back to the, that very intimate and personal loving relationship that God has with people like us. It's one thing to know that the God you worship and serve is more powerful than everything else. It, it's a whole new thought of intimate relationship with him when he describes himself as vitally and personally connected to the church. And that's what Jesus is as head. How does God think of his church? Verse 23, his body. And look at this last phrase. This is a whole sermon in itself. The fullness of him who fills all in all. There's not one part of the universe today that God isn't fully present in, and yet he considers himself as less than full if he's separated from his church. That's what's being communicated there. You say, wait, wait, wait. The church right now, at least the church on planet Earth, is made up of imperfect people. Yep. It's made up of people who sin, sometimes even against each other, right? Yeah. People who don't worship God and serve him with all their heart, soul, strength, and might like he's commanded. Yep. But you're telling me that God so loves his church that he considers himself to be incomplete, if that's even possible when you're God, apart from his church? Yeah, that seems to be what Paul is saying. Do you know how much he loves you? And does not this kind of love Bring hope. Life in the valley can be really hard. It's not the only place on planet Earth where it's hard, but it's where we live, except for the Baumans who live in Germany. The pressure to put bread on the family table is exhausting. Some of you came in this morning just feeling that. Then you layer over that the, the pressure of of spiritual warfare, the warfare against your own sin, and you sometimes wonder, am I on my own? No, God is waging his holy war, wants to change you and transform you. So there's opposition within my flesh, as the Bible refers to it. There's also opposition without. Do I believe the forces of darkness are present in this valley? You bet. You'd be a fool to say, there's no spiritual stuff going on in this valley. 
And you feel it and you experience it just like we feel it and experience it in our household. Sometimes it just comes through those feelings where you're just like, man, I, I just feel discouraged, depressed, fearful, anxious. I, I, it's like I woke up this morning and there's just a weight resting on me. Well, sometimes that's just evidence of the spiritual warfare going on around us. And our marriages suffer and our friendships feel the strain and our ministry sometimes is fruitless and our parenting can be exasperating and kids, you all live in homes with imperfect parents, don't you? And sometimes moms and dads do exasperating stuff to you. There's a lot that shakes the snow globe. But here's the truth. Immeasurably great power is at work. But notice what Paul says to those who believe. God is working to accomplish his eternal purposes in us and through us. He will not fail. But these promises, this hope is for those who believe. So again I ask, do you believe? Do you believe the testimony of the Apostle Paul? Do you believe the the testimony of the Old Testament prophets like the psalmists or Micah? Do you believe the testimony of other New Testament gospel authors like John or Matthew or Mark or Luke? Do you believe this word? Our hope is founded on more than good wishes and human ingenuity. When God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he signaled that the work of salvation was accomplished. And through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, a real forgiveness has been secured by God for those like us who come to him. The individual record of debt which stood against sinners has been taken out of the way. We saw that several weeks ago in Colossians 2. The authorities, the rulers of darkness have been disarmed and Jesus Christ has openly triumphed over them in his cross. And when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he signaled the beginning of a new era. His work of salvation includes making all his people to be holy, blameless, without reproach. Knowing God is our first and great blessing. Knowing the hope of his eternal saving call secures us in this present age. Knowing that he considers the saints to be his glorious, cherished inheritance protects us against our doubts and our fears, those things that would paralyze us in the journey of life. And knowing that the same resurrection power that brought Jesus from the dead is the very power that God is exercising in our lives at this moment establishes a real hope, hope that cannot be taken away. This, again, is not the only reason we name this church Gospel Hope. More than the name for a church, it is the hope for life. And we believe it, and we share it, we proclaim it, and we rest in it. Let's pray together. Father, in just a moment, we're going to think through some very practical ways we can live this out. And as we do, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us. And for those who've never put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, let this be the day. And for those who feel swallowed up by the hopelessness or a sense of worthlessness, feel overwhelmed by car repairs or parenting challenges or marriage issues, oh Lord God, would you come and speak words of life and hope, of healing and blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.